whatever my God ordains is right. What a beautiful song. I pray and hope that you will meditate on this, uh, the lyrics of the song in the weeks to come. And as we consider the work of God for us and in us, I am reminded of, uh, of a particular characteristic about each and every one of us, and that is we love to see things completed and finished. One of the joys yesterday as we have had a wonderful work day with so many of, of you members and even non-members who have come just to help us um, is that we were able to tackle projects here around the facility. And uh, there's something, I think, God-given in us that we take pleasure when something gets completed and done. Have you noticed how the opposite happens, how frustrated you are when a project gets started and remains uh, left unfinished? Perhaps it's done 50% or 75% or even 95%. But that last 5% that remains unfinished becomes like a little pebble in your shoe that just bothers you frustrates you and you know people around you who have a tendency to be like that perhaps you are one of the people about whom others think that Uh, there's something in us that loves completion loves to get things done and get it completed and our God is a God who completes what he started As a matter of fact, we may be struggling at times with wondering if God is going to leave this thing that's in our lives unfinished. Because it seems often in our daily experiences in our lives that God is too slow or perhaps he has forgotten to do what he said he would. And in our own hearts, in our own walks with the Lord, there are times when we may get frustrated with the Lord. Or perhaps we develop doubts towards the Lord. Will he do what he promised? Will he see this need or this issue or this this problem in my life? Will he see it to completion? There are times when we may feel at a loss, when it may seem like in the present we have no idea what God is up to and doubt and wonder if he will finish it. In the passage we are going to look at this afternoon or this morning, hopefully it'll be still morning, um, the passage we will look at this morning is going to encourage us to press on because God will see us through to future glorification. God will see us through to future glorification and there's two reasons that God gives us in this passage that we're going to look at, and that is Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 30. We will see two reasons that God gives us to encourage us to press on, because he will see us through to future glory. Let's open God's word to Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 30. This is God's word for us this morning. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. 
But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And, ho- and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word and our hearing? Let's pray. Gracious Father, you have given us your Son, you have given us your Holy Spirit. So we pray that by your Spirit today, as we have read this word, that you would make this word powerful in our hearing today. I pray that you would assist me in proclaiming it, and I ask that you would help all of us to hear it as your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God will see us through to future glory. This passage that we've just read is part of a longer text, a longer section in which the Apostle Paul is dealing with suffering, encouraging believers to to press on and to be encouraged despite their sufferings. In verses 18 through 25, Paul told us about the hope of future glory as a means of encouraging us to press on, to persevere, knowing about what awaits us as believers, what God is preparing for us for the future can be a great encouragement for us in the present in times of difficulty. But a question that raises up and comes up to the surface is, but how do we know that what he promises to do for us in the future will come true? In our text, Paul gives us two grounds for encouragement as we face suffering and weakness. These reasons serve as assurance that this hope of future glory will not leave us hanging. It will not disappoint us. God is going to see us through to future glory. And the grounds for this assurance uh, of that future glory is twofold in our passage. The first ground, the first reason is the Spirit helps us in the present. The Spirit helps us in the present. And the second reason is that God works all things for our good. God works all things for our good. Let's look at each of these reasons, each of these sections in our text today, and see how Paul is encouraging us to press on, to be assured of this future glory. The Spirit helps us in the present. Look at how Paul begins in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Did you see how 
Paul begins this verse with the word, likewise. He's continuing the argument of, of verses 18 through 25, where Paul spoke about Christians facing suffering with this hope that the future, that the future glory is not worth comparing with the present suffering. And Paul spoke to us about the, the groanings of all creation and even the groaning of believers as we wait for that day when the freedom of the children of God will be fully manifested. And Paul now says, likewise, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What is this, what is this weakness that the Spirit helps us in? Bible interpreters take different views on it. Some would say that this weakness is a general weakness. Uh, anything that we encounter in our lives uh, that falls short of what God has hoped for and designed us for. Maybe the physical weakness. It may be the emotional weakness. It may be weakness in, in our relationships. Maybe spiritual weakness. As we live life, various facets of weakness. That is one way Bible interpreters think about the meaning of weakness here. It's in the singular. Others assume and think that actually this weakness is more specific, that it refers to particularly the weakness in prayer. And it's not so much the weakness that we sometimes just fail to pray, although that is often a weakness. Don't you agree? But here it's possible that the weakness is even more specific. It's a subset that when we pray, we actually may not even know what to be praying for. Clearly, if we keep reading the verse, Paul is speaking about, about this failure, about this weakness and not even knowing what to ask God for when we want to pray. We want to pray, but things are so difficult, so painful. We are at such a loss, perhaps so hopeless, perhaps so tired, perhaps so numb to the suffering that honestly we don't even know what to be asking God for. So it's possible that the weakness is that very specific form of the weakness. Regardless of, each, of, of what interpretation we take, it is simply possible that to get to that place of being so weak that we don't even know what to ask God for is a sign of, of the, the long journey of facing suffering and weakness that got us to this low point, that even in our prayer, even in what we ask God for, that seems to be the, the bottom of the barrel. In times of suffering, we may not know what to ask God for. We may not know what to pray as we ought we may not know the purposes of God with our suffering and weakness. We don't know his plans. And we are simply at a loss. Friends, just because we hit those moments in life. And when we do hit those moments in life, Paul says, Oh dear believer, oh dear Christian, dear child of God, you've got help. Even in those moments of deep weakness, we have someone next to us 
who's there for help. And his name is the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God himself who is there with you. And notice in verse 26 what he is doing. He is interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. Now again, this passage must be understood in the context of what went on earlier. In verse 22, we were told that creation has been groaning in the, in the pains of childbirth. In verse 23, Paul told us that even we Christians groan ourselves inwardly as we, as we wait. And now in verse 26, we're told of a third player who is groaning. It's a spirit of God groaning inside our hearts. This means that actually we have two intercessors before God, the Father. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is now ascended to the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us. But this passage tells us that it's not only Jesus who is at the right hand of God interceding for us, we have another intercessor, the Holy Spirit, who is actually inside of us. And from within our hearts, he who dwells in us also intercedes for us. This is not merely the work of the Spirit who helps us to pray. This is the work of the Spirit who prays for us. Oh, friends, this is amazing to hear that we are not alone in those moments of weakness. And when the level of our, our weakness is so high or so deep that we don't even know what to pray as we ought, God tells us through this passage, child of God, don't despair. You're not alone. The Spirit of God who dwells in you is praying for you. Now, what are these groanings? Paul describes them as unutterable. Look at verse 27 and or verse 26. He who the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Some interpret this language as being just language that is unutterable. Some Bible commentators and Bible teachers assume or interpret that these words must be the unintelligible words of, of speaking in tongues. But I'm not persuaded by this interpretation. And here's why. The term that is translated unutterable, or in our ESV translation, too deep for words, should not be translated as unintelligible, but as unaudible. We don't hear them. Just as the groanings of creation in verse 22 earlier, we don't hear those groanings, do we? We're just told that creation groans, but we don't hear it. The same way, the Spirit of God could be groaning inside of us, and we just don't hear those groanings. 
The Spirit's groanings are not audible groanings, but they are the inner desires that the Spirit has for us, and He is communicating those desires on our behalf to the Father. We don't hear the Spirit interceding for us. We don't know what He is asking God for, but what we do know is that He is interceding for us, and what He intercedes for is in accordance to the will of God. Here's what we know from verse 27. That even though we don't know what the Spirit is interceding before God for us, God knows. Look at verse 27. And he who searches hearts, that refers to God the Father, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This means that the Spirit of God who dwells in us is praying for us to the Father, even if we don't hear His prayers and we don't know His requests. But He's praying to the Father according to the Father's will. He knows what to be praying for us, even though at times we don't even know what we ask for. And the God who is searching the hearts knows what the Spirit is praying. Dear Christian, do you, do you know the joy of others praying for you? Knowing that others are praying for you. And I, I know many of you know that joy because you practice the asking of intercessory prayer. You are courageous and take the initiative to ask us to be praying for you in various needs or situations that you are going through. And I'm so encouraged to hear that because I know it comes from a heart that is convinced that intercessory prayer, praying for others, is God's way of working in us. So I want to encourage us to be growing in that intercessory prayer. But here we hear about another prayer partner for us. And that is the Holy Spirit of God who already dwells in us. And who's already praying for us before the Father. Now just because he's praying for us doesn't mean that you and I should not pray for one another. This is just to show intercessory prayer is God's way of of working in us. And he's providing the third person of the, of the Trinity who dwells in us and he is a prayer partner for us and with us. Oh friends, God knows what the Holy Spirit is praying for us. And, and the Spirit's help is not only that he's praying for us, but that we can be sure and certain that he is praying according to God's will. Sometimes our prayers may be missing God's intent and purpose. Sometimes we may be asking God for things we want and we desire, and God's will is, is different. God has a purpose that we do not yet understand. Sometimes we may be asking of God with selfish motives. Sometimes we may be asking God for our own personal uh, agendas, and God has a different plan. Sometimes we don't know what to ask for. But be assured of this, the Spirit of God who is in us always knows the mind of God. And He's always asking 
God for us according to his will. I love how uh, Bible teacher and uh, commentator Tom Schreiner said the weakness of believers in prayer, therefore, is that they do not have an adequate grasp of what God's will is when they pray. Because of our finiteness and fallibility, we cannot fully perceive what God would desire. But even when that's the case, the encouragement is the Holy Spirit in us knows. What a comfort. What a comfort this can be. Especially when you feel like you are alone in your suffering. When you feel like you are at a loss and no one understands you. Oh no, you are not at a loss. You are not alone. The Spirit of God is with you. He understands and He is praying to the Father on your behalf. And friends, even if we don't understand all that's going on in our suffering, friends, don't assume you're alone. The Spirit of God is there. He's actively inside of us. In our suffering, the Spirit of God helps us. He helps us by praying for us. He helps us by praying according to the will of God. And he prays. And we are assured that God knows what the Spirit is praying for. And there's a second reason. Not only that we are not alone in our suffering today, that we have a companion, an intercessor. The second reason Paul gives us to give us assurance of the hope of this future glory is that God works all things for our good. We see this in verses 28 to 30. Paul introduces this second reason that that God is actually going to see us through to future glory by reminding us and assuring us that God is working all things for our good. Look at verse 28. And we know. It's as if Paul says, "And, and we are confident We are certain that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, in our our society, there is an optimistic look uh, in all that we do in general. Uh, And we hear things like, everything will work out. Or people want to encourage one another and say things like, don't be stressed. Everything will, ju- will be just fine. Have you heard people say that? Everybody says that. You don't have a be- to be a Christian to utter those words. Non-Christians use that all the time. Well, there's a sense in which that optimistic view of life is very misguided. Because the Bible actually tells us the opposite. Things will not work out for everybody. Actually, for everybody who is not in the family of God, things will not work out in the end. The book of Romans started with a message that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness, against all those who exchange the glory of God for the glory of mortal things. No, the Bible does not promise that all things will work out. That things will be just fine for everybody. So that optimistic view of life in general that our society loves to promote 
Friends, we got to poke the, the bubble. It's not true. And yet, there is a message that the gospel does bring. And it's in this verse that actually, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Oh, friends, there is a subset of all humanity, a category of people who get this amazing promise that all things will work out for good. And that subset of humanity is only for those who love God. Oh, this is wonderful news. For those who love the Creator, this is the opposite subset of people from the all humanity that was introduced in Romans 1. Instead of being glory stealers, Instead of being those who take the glory of God and exchange it for the glory of mortal things and of creation. Those who love God. Those who love Him as the maker of all things. As the one who deserves all glory and honor. For those who relate to God in a loving relationship. For them and only for them. All things work out. For the good. Really, all things? Even my suffering? Even my weakness? Even the weakness of not knowing what to pray and ask God for? Yes, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, I am not much of a cook, but I've come to know a few things about some recipes. There are certain recipes that call you to put in them some elements that by themselves would be not fun to eat. I mean, have you tried eating just a tablespoon of flour or just eat a cup of baking powder have that for dessert I know I just ruined your lunch I'm sorry but so many of the recipes that you bake and cook require you to put things in them that by themselves would be awful to eat. And yet when they are mixed together with all the other ingredients and put on the stove, under pressure, under heat, or in the oven, ends up turning into a wonderfully tasting dish. And friends, suffering and weakness is like that for us. By itself, by themselves, they're awful to experience. But the Lord knows how to mix them together. And he puts them all under, under the heat of his sovereign will. And what comes out at the end of all of it 
is an incredibly good product. And that's the, the image that, we, that Paul wants to give us. It says, for those who love the Lord, all things work together for good. You say, Pastor, I, I get the illustration, but I'm not yet convinced. How do we know that all things work together for good? And Paul wants to give us one of the most powerful reasons to convince us that they will work out for good. And that reason is God's eternal and definitive plan of salvation. God's eternal, definitive, and effectual plan for salvation. And in verses 29 and 30, we have one of the most amazing summaries of God's story of our redemption from his perspective. It doesn't include all the details. The cross and the resurrection are not even mentioned. These are some high moments. It's not exhaustive, but there are some high moments of de describing God's eternal, definitive, and effective plan of our salvation. And notice the steps. The first thing one Paul wants to say about, the, about, our, about this plan of salvation is that God started this plan before we acted. God started this plan before we acted. He says in verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God determined a destiny for a specific subset of people whom he foreknew. Now the language of foreknowledge or foreknowing is often misunderstood. We think of knowledge as merely having information. And with this definition, foreknowledge would mean having information ahead of time before an event takes place. But in the Bible, the language of knowledge is not limited merely to information. It's also the language of knowing. In the Bible, the language of knowing is actually a language of a relationship. Like, I know you. Like, we are in a relationship. To know someone in the sense of, of the biblical sense of knowledge is to be in a relationship with someone. That's why in some of the genealogies that we get in the Old Testament, it would say, and Adam knew his wife Eve. That was a language of actually, and, and after that sentence, we see that a son is born. The language of knowing in that context is actually the language of, of a husband and a wife. Uh, interacting with one another in the sexual act. It's a language of knowing. It's being in a relationship. We know that that language shows up throughout the Bible. It's not just in the Old Testament. At one point, Jesus speaks about the day of judgment. And he sp speaks of a, of a group of people who will come before God's throne of judgment and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name? Haven't we done this in your name? Haven't we done this other set of activities in your name? And Jesus says, the Father will tell those folks, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. It's not the language of, I didn't know you exist. 
I didn't know you were around. I had no information about you. It's a language of, we were not in a relationship. I never knew you. You thought you know me. I never knew you. So the foreknowledge language, so the language of knowledge and foreknowledge is not so much a, a category of having information about, it's a category of being in a relationship with. So in light of that, when Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, is a means of saying, for those with whom God planned to have a relationship with. For those with whom God planned to have a relationship with. This means, dear friends, that our relationship with God did not start in our hearts, but in God's heart. And that's significant. Those on whom God has put his eyes on to enter into a relationship with. He didn't just sit around and just wait. The Bible says he predestined them. Their destiny was that they would be conformed to the image of his son. The predestination here is a predestination to, to actually be in the image of Jesus. There are some Christians who have a hard time with the notion of predestination. I get it. Some people would say, do you really believe in predestination? I wonder, have you read Romans 8? And Romans 9 and Ephesians 1? It's in the Bible. God predetermined a destiny for all those on whom he has set his eyes on to be in a relationship with. He decreed that they would be like his son Jesus. But for what purpose? For what purpose would, would they be set to be in the image of Jesus? Look at verse 29. In order that he, meaning Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Earlier in chapter 5, Paul contrasted Jesus with, uh, with the first Adam and indicated that Jesus was the Son of God who became human through his incarnation in order to start a new humanity and that Jesus would actually be the, be the firstborn among the many brothers in this new humanity. In ancient times, the firstborn in a family had superior status to all his siblings so the reason why God predestined us to be like Jesus is so that God would bring many other sons and daughters into his family and resemble our big brother, Jesus. You notice how siblings in our families look like one another? I mean, the, the McKill children all look alike. The Dykes children all look alike. The Echeverria children all look alike. Because we resemble one another. And God says, I have predestined those with whom I want to be in a relationship with. I am predestining you to be like Jesus. So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Oh friends, God's act of predestination is, so that, is that he would create a family who would all resemble the firstborn among all the others, namely Jesus. Earlier, Paul told us that if we are children of God, we are not only heirs of God, but co-heirs with Jesus. And now Christ was 
is being, we are told that he is also the firstborn among many brothers. We share in the same family status as Christ. And just as siblings look alike, we are predestined by God to look like Jesus. Oh, friends, that's why, that's why we encourage one another to look more like Christ in our daily dealings. That's why we confess our sins when we fail to do so. That's why we encourage one another to live not isolated individual lives, but like brothers and sisters living in a family because Jesus is our firstborn brother. Not in the sense that he was created. He is eternal. But in this metaphor of the family, he is the firstborn among the brothers to show that he has preeminence. It's all about this big brother, Jesus. Friends, this is why the meaning of, of membership in a local church is to encourage one another to follow and look like this Jesus more and more. We link arms with one another. Why? Because God predestined us to be like Jesus and therefore our church membership fits into this picture of God transforming us to look more like Jesus. But this assurance is given to us this assurance of being predestined to be like Jesus is given to us not so that we may have a cheap view of salvation. It's given to us as evidence of the claim Paul made in verse 20, 28. How do we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good? Paul's answer is, because God predestined you to be like Jesus. You know things will turn out for good. You can take this to the bank and be certain that all things will turn out for good because God predestined those who love God. God predestined those who God has called. He predestined them to be like Jesus. This plan will not fail. Friends, the doctrine of predestination gives us assurance that for those who are in a love relationship with God, for them all things will work out for good. Child of God, you may be suffering now. Some of us may be hopeless and tired. Things may not be working out the way you expect and want them to. But do not be afraid. You are destined to be in the image of Jesus. This is God's eternal decree and it is not for us to debate about predestination this is about assurance in the midst of suffering this is this is about the assurance that the future glory is certain that what God has planned for us will take place predetermining our destiny does not mean that God's work is over notice what else what are some of the steps God is taking in this process? Verse 30, and those whom he has predestined, he also called. The Bible speaks about calling in multiple ways. It speaks in a very general sense about the calling that God gives to all humanity, the call of the gospel to be saved. And this call must be preached to every human being. And yet there is a subset of that general call that is given only to those whom God 
predestines. That call is different than the general call because in the latter case, it is an effectual call. It's a call that actually brings about the result that God intends. How do we know that? Well, because if we read in verse 30, the following part, those whom he called, he also justified. There is a, a more narrow dimension of the calling because of this phrase, those whom God called, he also justified. The general calling does not fit in this category. The general calling of the gospel does not fit in this category. There is a subset, an effectual calling that produces the intended results that God has in such a way that those who are called in this latter case, in this effectual calling, are also justified. Now, we're not told here all the details about justification because God, Paul spent the first few chapters of Romans to tell us about what that means. To be justified means to, to put your faith in Jesus Christ as the one who is a substitute for our sins. To put your faith in him, to trust in his death on your behalf, and to trust in his resurrection on your behalf. And all those who respond to this gospel call by repentance and faith are justified. Friends, if you have never experienced that, I want to call you in today to respond to the Lord. Put your trust and reliance on Jesus, not on yourself. He has paid for the sins of all those who would call on him to be saved. So would you call on him today if you have not yet done so? God is working his eternal plan through the basic preaching of the gospel. Those whom he called, he justified. And then Paul says, and those whom he justified, he glorified. In other words, those who are truly experiencing the, same, the grace of God and being made right with God through faith in Jesus... Their end is secure. They will reach the final last stage of this salvation process, glorification. Paul describes this, if you notice, in the past tense. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Why is it past tense? To show you that in God's eternal plan of salvation, this plan of salvation is definitive, is effectual. It's already done. In a way that you and I, in the sequence of time, is not yet flowing out. It's still in process, if you will. But from God's perspective, this plan of salvation is already done. The end is here. In God's perspective, not in ours. Oh, friends, all this is to show that when God is play, laying out this plan of salvation, it's eternal, it's definitive, it's effectual. And remember, when, he, when Paul closes here with the glorification, he gets us back where he started in verse 18. Remember in verse 18, Paul said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When Paul wanted to encourage us to press on in our suffering, he reminded us about the glory God is preparing for us. 
And now at the end of this section, Paul circles back to our glorification because God will see us through to future glory because this is God's decree. And he presents it as a done deal already. Oh, friends, people may have many questions about these verses, especially when they hear about God's predetermined plan of salvation. Some people may ask questions like, does this mean that I don't have to do anything? If God is already working this definitive plan, does this mean I'm, I'm just a, a little guy in a deterministic universe? No, that's not the case. Remember how all this section started. Paul said, for those who love God. There is a love relationship that God wants to have with us. And he engages you and I through the call of the gospel to turn back to this God that we have turned our faces from. To give him the glory that is due to his name. To turn away from doing things in our own agendas, in our own ways. To be restored to him through his son, Jesus Christ. Oh, friends, without this response, there is, without this response there's no justification. There's no love relationship. Our response of repentance and faith is evidence that God's effectual calling is on us, but God wants you and I to respond to him by turning, repenting of our sins and trusting in him. There's no easy believism here. There's no one saved, always saved idea so that you can go on and just live your life the way you want to. Those who are saved are saved to be like Jesus and they will persevere to the end, all the way to glorification, because it is God who holds us. He helps us by his spirit in our weakness. He assures us that all things work together for the good of those who love him. One wrong question to ask from this text is to wonder if you are predestined. That's the wrong question to ask. The better question to ask is, do you love God? Have you repented and trusted in Christ? That is the question for you and I. Are you in this subset of people whose relationship to God can be described as a love relationship? Do you love him? Because if you are not in that category, all your debates about predestination will mean nothing. You're wasting your time. The big question is if you are in this love relationship with God. Well, friends, explaining the, the process of salvation from foreknowledge to glorification has the role of assuring us that for those who love God, all things will work out for their good. The question is, do you love him? Do you see yourself, your relationship to God as more of a duty relationship as more of an exchange of favors I'll do this for God because I want God to do this back for me is it just a a sense of just tradition like this is just good people this is what they do we can do a lot of good things towards God and yet for there to be lacking a love motivation the Bible says that we love him because he loved us first he foreknew us 
he set our, uh, his eyes on us to love us. And the response of that foreknowledge, foreordained relationship of love is that we respond back with loving the Lord. Oh, my dear friends, for those who are in this category, we can be certain and sure that all things will work out for the good. Why? Because God's eternal plan of salvation is eternal, definitive, effective. God will see us through to future glorification. How do we know that? The Spirit helps us in the present, and God works all things for our good because of his eternal plan. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing your plan of salvation for us in a way that encourages us, gives us confidence to press on, to persevere, knowing that you are the God who holds us, knowing that you are the God who sustains us, when our faith is weak, when our walks with you get to that bottom level where we don't feel like we know even what to ask for or pray for. Father, thank you that you are there through your spirit inside our hearts. It is because of your work of grace in us that we can love you back. It is because of your work of grace in us that we can respond with repentance and faith and trust in you. So we pray that by your spirit, you would work again in a fresh way. Pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ for his glory and honor. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.